Good morning, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to the Schmooze podcast, our new series live. I'm Rabbi Matt Rosenberg, COO here at JGSI. Thank you to those who are joining us from around the country at our 130 graduate campuses, providing Jewish programming to all of our students and alumni out there. And uh, thank you to all those tuning in. I'm here this morning. Thank you, David, with David Golden. And uh, David Golden is the managing partner at Revolution Ventures. And uh, David is uh, going to discuss his life and his career, Jewish involvement with us today. So David, uh, again, thank you for being here this morning. Why don't we talk first about a biographical sketch? Tell us about yourself, your upbringing, and how you got to where you are today and what you currently do with your life. Great. Well, Matt, thank you very much. And thank you to Jalkan for including me today. And thank you to all of you who are listening. Um, I could talk about my biography for days. We've only got a little bit of time today, so I'll try and keep it very short. But I was I grew up in, in Minnesota uh, and I went off to uh, college and law school at Harvard. And I came to San Francisco where we're sitting today uh, right out of law school. I was a, a, a clerk on the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, which was and still is headquartered here in San Francisco. And that was my first exposure to the Bay Area and Silicon Valley and, and everything like that. Um, I, like a lot of people in my generation and today, had borrowed money to go to law school. So I had to go earn some money and I did what a lot of us still do. Joined a large Wall Street firm uh, called Davis Polk. Uh, worked with them in New York and London for a little less than five years. And then I returned to San Francisco uh, and joined a, a very small kind of boutique investment bank, venture capital firm called Hambrick & Quist. I was just coming in as a punk associate. I concluded I wasn't going to be a great lawyer, so I wanted to try something else. Um, and, you know, better to be lucky than smart. That was really the ri rise of the tech crest wave in the 90s. Uh, ended up running their investment bank. We sold that business to J.P. Morgan Chase around 2000. Stayed on as a vice chairman running their global tech media and telecom practice. Did that for about another four or five years, missed the entrepreneurial stuff that we had been doing, and then joined uh, Steve Case, one of the founders of AOL. About 15 years ago, we started uh, something called Revolution, initially as a family investment company, and now it's a multi-asset class uh, fund manager, and I run their ventures initiative. So I compressed a lot of time there in, in what I hope is a brief uh, a brief summary. That was, that was a great summary. It's, I think it's a story that a lot of our students and alumni can relate to. I myself, having come out of law school and done the associate thing for a few years, your vector was a little different than a little, mine. A little yes. bit different, but uh, I guess let, let's let's start there. Um, you know, to clerk on the Ninth Circuit, obviously a big achievement and um, one that seems you know litigation focused or, or courtroom focused. Um, and you obviously made a switch pretty early on into the corporate realm. What prompted that? Was it just a sense of dissatisfaction with being a lawyer in particular, or was it more? Uh, some, uh, some some kind of personal dream that you wanted to fulfill in business? Well, I certainly didn't have the personal dream to fulfill in business. And I think when I graduated law school, I didn't know what an investment bank was. I didn't know what they did. Um, the clerkship was part of that same inertia, I think, that sort of took me from college to law school. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Uh, and as a you know, 19, 20-year-old, that's not all that unusual. Law school was interesting to me because, you know, all my parents' friends said, oh, you can't go wrong going to law school. But more than that, it, it, the, the study of the law, I, some people hate law school. I really loved it. For me, it was, a, it was a combination of sociology and economics and philosophy and American history. Um, and I, I, just, I just thought it was great. Uh, but when I when I finished that, sort of a logical next step to do because everybody was doing it was apply for a clerkship. So that was kind of the, the the trajectory I was on. And that, frankly, took me into the practice of law, which I had never 
thought I would I would do. But after about four or five years, it was it was clear to me I was okay at it, but I didn't love it. Um, it was increasing, at least in these large corporate firms, kind of technocratic. I mean, you had to get really specialized really quickly. Um, and I didn't have a passion for any of those subspecialties. And I just figured I should figure out something else to do. Okay. Well, and I would imagine when you entered into the uh, venture capital world, it was not the way it is today in which it's everyone in San Francisco wants to get into venture capital. <laughs> and, you know, uh, what, what was it like and have you seen the industry change since you entered it? Well, and it, and it was, a, for me, again, it was a two-step process. I went first, first into in, investment, investment banking, banking yeah. and, and that's the, the investment banking nexus to law was then and still is pretty tight. I didn't know corporate finance. I knew a fair amount about mergers because I had been working as a lawyer. But I was, and all, and I joined this firm right after the stock market crash of 1987. And all of my lawyer friends, who as a group are naturally more risk averse, said, "David, you're crazy. You know, what, what are you doing?" And I was a little nervous because I figured if the layoffs were coming, you know, I would be an easy target. So I negotiated my offer letter. They were getting me for cheap. You know, they knew I wanted out of the law. But the only operative term in my letter was that they couldn't fire me for 18 months unless I was convicted of a felony. And I figured, ah, 18 months, if I can't learn how to add value, they should fire me. But that would give me some time to learn. And, and I really did. Hopefully enough time that you wouldn't be convicted of a felony. Exactly. Yeah. Because that's a long process. But um, but I learned a lot on the job. And it was a small kind of, as I said, boutique firm. And you could ask questions without being embarrassed. Um, but the but the pivot to venture was a little bit more of a dissatisfaction of where the the business, the banking business had gone. I had been working with you know, small entrepreneurial companies. I never had the the, the DNA um, to like gamble at all on on the risk risky venture. Um, you know, take out the second mortgage, max out the credit cards. But I loved hanging around with those people, and they were optimistic and they were idealistic. And yes, they were a little more risk acceptant than mm-hmm. I was. But I uh, but I missed that because by the time we're I'm now a vice chair at J.P. Morgan Chase and. You know, I'm calling on AT&T and I'm calling on IBM and um, there were about 15 guys behind me that if I got to buy a bus would be perfectly happy calling on AT&T and calling on IBM. And I missed that that consultative role of working with the entrepreneur and I missed that optimism. Mm-hmm. And so when my friend Steve Case was leaving AOL Time Warner, he was reaching out for kind of a tech finance guy and, and asked if I would join and that's how, that's how that got started. And you were able to become a tech finance guy. So. Yes. How were you able to grow into that role? What what steps did you take to learn the business or those various businesses? And what advice would you give to people who, you know, are looking at a career path that's wide open and and uh, you know you can't learn everything in law school or business school? And and uh, how do you how did you educate yourself along the way? Yeah, well, there, there are certain elements to venture capital um, that that um, required some learning on the job. One is kind of the the structure of the venture capital transaction. It's not very complicated. You know, these are not complicated balance sheets, but there there are equities and classes of equities and all sorts of protective provisions. And so that's a kind of an on the job uh, on the job effort. But how you become good as a venture capitalist is is there's a high degree of randomness to it. Um, we have a couple of rules that, that we live by, but as one of my partners says, you know, it takes 10 years to know whether you're any good at this job. It is such a long dated asset. And for a young person who's coming into venture capital, you, you've got to be patient. You've got to be placing chips at different spots on the table. You've got to spend a lot of time with your companies and understanding their businesses. It's not a high velocity, at least the way we do it. It's not a high velocity business. Um, and that just takes a lot of on the job training and a lot of questions because every business is, I mean, they're, 
their common patterns, but every business is very different. And how do you learn each business that you consider investing in? Well, first of all, you try and narrow the field. Like I won't invest in biotechnology at our fund and I won't invest in oil and gas exploration because I don't know anything about those businesses. Mm -hmm. And there's such a specialized expertise around those businesses. But software companies, financial technology companies, financial services companies, um, uh, consumer companies are a little easier to see common patterns um, relating to how you build a business and how you acquire customers. Um, but we start by betting on the management team, or as one of my other partners says, you bet on the jockey, not the horse. Mm-hmm. Um, because the only thing you know for sure when you write that first check, which by the way is a very easy thing to do, writing the check is the easy part. Mm-hmm. It's building the value is the hard part. The only thing you know for sure is that the business plan and what's going to happen over the next three years are going to diverge. It just never goes according to plan. So you really want managers who are a little more nimble and a little more creative and willing to be coached and transparent. And besides looking at the strengths of the management team, what excites you about a potential investment? Like What really kind of uh, motivates you to look in that direction versus however many other hundreds of people who are trying to knock at your door to get some financing. Right. Well, I like a little bit of the, you know, when I'm hearing the pitch, a little bit of the head slap, what I call the head slap effect, which is, God, this is a really clever idea. This is something that other people haven't thought about. And as a result, there aren't going to be, you know, 30 Me Too companies trying to do the same thing. You know, the next the next Uber for XYZ, we were getting a lot of those pitches because the XYZs were so common, but occasionally you'd find a a weird marketplace or a different approach to an asset class or something that you go, wow, that is really interesting. And then you say, okay, I want to spend some time working on this. And the diligence process will, you know, will take us a couple of months. Sometimes we'll meet Mm -hmm. a company. It's not right for whatever reason. We'll meet them again a year later and it will be the right time. We try to stay close to those opportunities. Do you feel that your legal training has been helpful on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, it's fantastic. And I tell people who, who go into business and are debating whether to do the JD plus the MBA, that, that if you can afford it, the JD MBA is just, and I don't have, I just have the JD, but Mm -hmm. the JD MBA is just terrific um, um, intellectual capital. But I, but in every negotiation I do and every, uh, uh, conversation that we're talking to management teams about how to deal with regulators, uh, in every, um, financing document, I always look over and, you know, you just develop this natural affinity for the legal side of it without being a lawyer. I, I never pretend to be the lawyer. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be the guy just looking for problems that makes you a bad investor as a general rule, but it makes you a very easy conversationalist with lawyers when they're giving you advice. You keep your bar membership up? I do, yeah, actually, today. in two states. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm a little bit delayed without that myself. Yeah. Uh, what are some of the favorite investments that you've been involved in? Um, um, favorite investments. Well, they're, they're obscure and a little quirky. Um, a couple you guys have probably heard of, uh, in our sister fund, the growth funds, uh, like Sweet Greens or Draft Kings. Those are, those tend to be more brand names. I tend to gravitate toward a, a little, um, stranger financial services company. So there's a company we invested in uh, probably seven, eight years ago. It was actually headquartered both in here and in Denver, two, two co-founders, one of whom I met at Temple, just to show you how this, how this all comes around. We'll get to that. Part yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and it was a very, uh, uh, can I spend a minute on this? It's sure, a little granular, sure. yeah, but, yeah. um, normally when you sell a private company, um, particularly a venture backed private company, let's say for a hundred million dollars, the buyer says, great, I'm not going to wire you $100 million. I'm going to wire you $90 million, and I'm going to put $10 million in an escrow account for the next two years. 
And that's going to protect me for things you didn't tell me about as a buyer. Maybe you're, you're delinquent in taxes. Maybe there's an employee harassment suit you didn't tell me about. Maybe you're sitting on a toxic waste dump. Anyway, that 10 million is there to protect me. At the end of which, whatever's left, you guys, you guys get. And typically for venture capitalists, that exercise was a pain because you're signing all the documents that you're at the lawyer's office and the lawyer would say, hey, we need somebody to watch that $10 million for the next two years. And, you know, and all the VCs kind of look at their shoes and they, look at, they don't want to do it because they want to move on to the next deal. And it's a non-trivial thing to watch that money. You're a fiduciary for the shareholders. You got to file taxes, a tax return if it's earning anything. And of course, um, two times out of three, the buyer comes back saying, hey, you owe me more money. And then you've got to prosecute that. You know, you hire the auditor or the a lawyer, whatever you need to do. So this, this group came up with the idea of professionalizing that business in the same way you'd hire a lawyer or an accountant. At the time you're doing the deal, you'd hire these guys, cost you $25,000, $50,000, and they say, we got it from here. We'll fight the good fight. We'll make sure everybody gets paid. We'll be the fiduciaries. And that's a really interesting business. But it's not really the sort of business a venture capitalist would invest in. We don't invest in accounting firms or law firms. It's the same basic idea. But they had an idea. They said, you know, all of this escrow money sits in bank accounts, and nobody seems to care about it. And I said, well, what do you mean nobody cares about it? He said, well, the selling shareholders don't care because they just want to get their 100 cents on the dollar back. And the buyer doesn't care because it's not their money. So it just sits there earning like one basis point. And I said, this is really, what's your idea? He said, we want to form a financial intermediary to manage that money and we can take the spread. So it was kind of an interest rate play on a new asset class, M&A escrows. Nobody mm -hmm. ever thought of it. Anyway, flash forward eight years. It's a huge business. Wow. It'll throw off a couple hundred million in cash this year. They've got five or six billion under management. Um, just and, in escrows. Yeah, just in escrows. Yeah. And it's very sticky money, so they can do a lot with that money. Anyway, that's a very long-winded news, but it's one of my favorites. That, that's great. Yeah. So on the, on the flip side, what are some, uh, what are some investments that went bust? The <laughs> um, uh, another company ba uh, based here in, in um, California that was in the subprime uh, lending space, and it had um, essentially blended both an online and a bodega front uh, in California and Texas in a few different areas to grow subprime mortgages. And as my former partner, Jamie Diamond, was always fond of saying in the lending business, um, I'll give you any growth rate you want in the lending business, but I get to pick the loss rate. <laughs> and this was a group that um, was very aggressive in how quickly that they grew and how upside down their balance sheet got. Um, and when COVID hit, they just they, they were underwater and they just couldn't survive. Yeah, so... So when you often ask, what's uh, who's an, an executive that you most admire? And a lot of people actually say Jamie. So what was it like working with Jamie? And, and, uh, well, we didn't we didn't work close. I mean, he's technically sort of bought my bought my business. Mm -hmm. We would interact occasionally on management, uh, but I have a lot of friends that are actually still at Morgan and work closely with him. And they get, look, you know, what can you say about the guy? He's he's obviously brilliant as a financial analyzer of risk. You know, he can do that in his head. He's brutally candid. He's funny and he's self-effacing. So mm -hmm. he's he's just a really he's someone to try and emulate for sure. It sounds consistent, yeah. Yeah. Now obviously this might be too soon, but we're here in San Francisco and we're over <laughs> you know, you know what I'm gonna ask. Um, you know, what the the fallout or anticipated fallout of uh, of Silicon Valley Bank, obviously uh, affecting quite a few businesses that probably you're involved in. Um any preliminary thoughts and what you what you might see happening here? Yeah, I think we're at one of those moments in in history where we're going to look back in six months or a year, a few years ago, well, that was, that was very interesting. Um, Silicon Valley Bank, the, the, the Fed's not going to bail them out. So Silicon Valley Bank will either get bought today or they'll go through their orderly, orderly wind down. It's an interesting story because unlike 2008 or 2009, 
the the bank it wasn't a credit story. The bank mm-hmm. had their loan book is terrific. If you're a depositor at SVB, you're going to get your money back. You'll get your insured amount back tomorrow, but right. you'll get the rest back probably over the next three to three to six months. The loan All book, of it, I believe so. Yeah. yeah, the loan book is actually quite was quite good, and you know backed by pristine venture capital firms and pretty deep balance sheets. Um, but and so they that was really a case of bad management. What what could happen is if the classic contagion drifts to other non-money center banks, you know, um, uh, uh, Western Pacific or First Republic or those, then it becomes a bigger issue because the, the, the Fed doesn't think of Silicon Valley Bank as a bank with systemic risk. And I understand that because it wasn't a, a large, large bank. But the second and third order effects of that aren't really understood in Washington. Probably half of our portfolio and half, they're in half of the venture capital backed businesses in this country bank with Silicon Valley Bank. Um, they'll get their money back, but they got to meet payroll next mm-hmm. week. And so everybody's now scrambling because there are millions of people employed by these tens of thousands of companies that Silicon Valley Bank backed. So it'll be very interesting to see whether other sources of capital can step into the breach in the next 14 days. I think that'll be critically interesting to watch. And that's uh, why my phone keeps buzzing, by the way. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Understood. Well, thank you. For, thank you again for the preliminary comments. I guess we'll, <laughs> we've got a matter of hours, as I understand, yes, to see yes. where this all goes. Exactly right. Okay. And now I'd love, love to, uh, to, to um, switch gears and talk about the Jewish aspect of the conference. Obviously, yeah. we're here together to talk about how our heritage has impacted us. And it's a question that everyone answers differently. But what does being Jewish mean to you? And how has that played a role in your life and, and uh, where you come from? Where are you going? Yeah. Well, so I'll take a tactical and I'll take a broader strategic or philosophical. Tactical, and I gave one example of that. You know, one of our best investments was a friend of mine from Temple and our kids were in the religious school together and we'd see each other all the time and frequently go out for coffee. And so the, just the, just the bonds of things like that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Jewish friends from summer camps and things like that that I've just stayed in touch with. And you grew up in Minneapolis? In Minneapolis, yeah. Okay. Grew up in Pretty Minneapolis. big Jewish community over there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was insular in the sixties and seventies, but mm-hmm. large. And so a lot of, a lot of friends from that, from that world as well. And that's just a nice community. And then broader, you know, strategically or what I think of as philosophically, I really try to, to focus on investments uh, in the, the work I do every day with this this sort of Tikkun Olam view of the world. Now, I'm a capitalist. I don't want to I don't want to make it sound rosier than it is, but we fundamentally believe when we're investing in companies that we're making the world better, we're employing lots of people and we're not, you know, we're not buying companies and laying people off and levering them. You know, it's it's a it's a it's a business that I believe is fundamentally good. And if you believe in capitalism, fundamentally important to to the growth of wealth. Uh, both here, uh, both here and around the world, and then obviously in the the day to day interactions, the negotiations, the difficult discussions with management, the arguments over the board table, it's all about um, you know doing what what is respectful and that no pun intended that golden rule and treating mm-hmm. people the way you want to be treated. Being a mensch, being a mensch, exactly. So I think we're about time for our rapid fire round. Okay. So this is we're trying to keep it to one or two word answers. Okay. So uh, favorite movie of all time? Uh, the Godfather. I'm Which one? Uh, all of them. Well, all of them, but two a little bit over one. <laughs> two a little over one. I, yeah. tend, I tend to agree. Yeah. Favorite place to vacation? Uh, Nantucket Island off Massachusetts. Most frequented app on your phone? Uh, email, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. First thing you do every morning, besides check your email. Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, the first thing I do, well, I try and stretch. I, you know, as I'm mm-hmm. getting up, and I, you know, you don't want back problems, I'll get up and I'll stretch. Favorite musical artist? Um, I'm product of the 60s and 70s. James Taylor, Elton John. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah. Any San Francisco influences on, on your musical tastes from, um, those, from those days? 
no, it's a Minnesota influence. My this is a cheap shot claim to fame. My cousin, Bob, Bob, Bob Dylan, is my cousin. Oh, he's so, your cousin. He's my cousin. No yeah, kidding. Yeah. So that I would uh, went, went to his concert when he was in Oakland. Whatever that was, five or six months. Like ago. first cousin. Uh, his grandma and my grandma were uh, sisters. Oh wow! So I guess that's second cousin. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. Okay. But it's she. I, I'm not close to Bob. She's wonderful. My son, the legend. You yeah, know, so there's right. very much of that at all the holidays. Yeah. I, would, I would imagine. Yeah, it's hard to hard to escape that. I mean, yeah. if you talk about Jews from Minnesota, he's like, <laughs> yes, you know, exactly. pretty exactly. much number one on the list. Exactly. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm glad I dug a little bit and you yeah. got that one. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And a book that's had the biggest impact on you? Um, I, I'm gonna. It's a shameless plug. My wife Susan uh, wrote a book four or five months ago, published by Harvard Business Press. Relevant, I hope, to all of your listeners. It's called Stage Not Age. All of your listeners are going to live to be 100. Mm-hmm. And it's a business book about how businesses, the business opportunities for the new life and and longevity in general. Wow. That was way more than two words. Sorry. Stage Not Age. Stage okay. Not Age. Susan Golden. I'm, I'm going to look for it. <laughs> okay. And recommend it. Thank you. Okay. And uh, favorite Jewish holiday? Uh, Passover. Love the Seder. Okay. Coming up, favorite Jewish food? Uh, Masa ball soup. Of Passover, of course. And uh, finally, last question, word association. One word that you associate with being Jewish. Uh, Empathy. Thank you very much, David Golden. Thank you to all those of you watching here today at the 18-minute schmooze. I think it's a little more than 18 minutes. Sorry about that. Longer than it takes to bake a matzah. But we are here at Gelcon Jewish Executive Leadership Conference in San Francisco. I'm Matt Rosenberg, your host. Thank you for being with us today. And everyone, stay safe and healthy out there.